Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Hi, welcome to Business is Unusual. We are here today with Rachel Cohen of Aging Dynamics. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so happy to have this chat with you. So what's the last thing you did for fun before we get into the work part of all of this? The last thing I did for fun was this morning when I woke up my ducks. So every day I have nine ducks. Um, And I love our morning ritual of waking them up and they come out squawking their heads off, asking for snacks. And then I get to collect their eggs, which is my favorite part of my day. I'm told duck eggs are amazingly rich. Also, they don't live in your house, right? They live in your yard or something. Oh, yes. They're outside. They are the healthiest creatures. (laughs) They are not welcome indoors. But yeah, their eggs are actually more nutritious than chicken eggs. They're amazing for baking because the yolks are like twice the size of Hmm. a chicken egg. Yeah, they're really tasty. A friend of mine said that she recently had some and said that they can taste like pond water or or a variety of things depending on what you feed them, the eggs. I think that's true of most egg-laying creatures. If you give them a lot of fish, they're going to taste a little fishy. But ours don't normally have, they get all kinds of vegetables. They're like the world's best composters. So lots of vegetables and fruit and all that kind of stuff. But no, we don't (laughs) give them too much fish. So it's okay. Nice. That's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. I Make Way for Ducklings is the... (laughs) I loved that book as a kid. Loved it. (laughs) It was so adorable. Thank you for sharing that. That's neat. So Aging Dynamics, tell us a little bit about that and introduce yourself. Yeah, so happy to. So I'm the founder and CEO of Aging Dynamics Consulting Firm. We work with all different types of entities, for-profit, non-profit, and government entities, all who are focused on healthy communities or age-friendly communities. So I have the pleasure of working with organizations who are startups all the way to very well-established organizations all over the country. And We basically are are committed to helping our clients fulfill their missions more. So that looks like anything from strategic planning to facilitation of boards and staff to community engagement. We do a lot of coalition building and work in the community to help our clients be able to to know that their mission is aligned with what the community wants and needs, and also that their actions are aligned with what the community wants and needs. So what is a, an age, I think it's an age-friendly or aging-friendly community? Yeah, age-friendly communities are places to grow up and grow older. So it's what our communities used to be way back in the day when we would have multiple generations living in the same neighborhood. We had built-in connections and support, and we've really moved away from that. And so the age-friendly community concept looks at all dimensions of the community from the built environment to social connections, health, wellness, 
transportation, housing, all of those pieces and says, all right, so how do we ensure that someone can be born here and live out their life with a high quality of life? It's looking at things like, do we have sidewalk connections? Are we able to, if you're a young parent with a child, take a stroller to the park. If you are an older person who maybe is a little bit less steady on your feet and you want to make sure you've got enough time to cross the street. Are we looking at our neighborhoods like that? Do we have opportunities for intergenerational connections to form? So looking at the programming, looking at the civic life, it's really a, it's a very healthy lens to look at our communities to make sure that we're supporting everybody who wants to be there throughout their entire life, throughout all different milestones, health situations, all of that. Yeah, that actually sounds really important. So this is business as unusual. What would you say is unusual about what you're doing? I bring together perspectives from a lot of different disciplines. So most people are very focused on health or housing or parks. For me, I've always looked at the world through this integrated lens. I have a background in social work and aging and nonprofits and community planning, and I've worked across all sectors. And that's how I, that's how I see our communities. So what I do is I'm bringing together your businesses, the hospitals, the public health entities, the schools, those in aging, community development, housing, all together to work on these challenges that we have, because they all work in the same space. They just don't know it most of the time. Yeah. What inspired you specifically to do this work around this company? Yeah, I've just always had a love for people and place. At one point in my career, I worked for National Wildlife Federation in Michigan, and I was working to help neighborhoods in Detroit and Milwaukee figure out how to take control of the redevelopment. There's all this money coming down, and it was very top top heavy. And I discovered during that time where I'm doing bops and meeting block captains and bringing together developers and all of that, that I just had this love for community. And I recognized the need for those intergenerational relationships, that need for being able to get from your house to your park and have a community garden. And those are the things that jazz me up. Like I just get super excited about how much we live in these places. And I found I couldn't, I kept trying to work for other people. I worked in nonprofits, I worked for other consultants, um, and none of it fit because everybody was so like just siloed. And that's just not how I see the world. It's not how we live in the world. So I said, fine, I'm taking the leap. And I started Aging Dynamics about seven years ago now. And that enabled me to be able to bring in a client who maybe only focuses on aging and be able to help teach them about everybody else around them and how do they speak the language of housing and how do they speak the language of healthcare and help get them all in the same room. And it's, they may come to me for a strategic plan, but I get to help them with all of the other pieces too, so that they become a stronger organization and we're re-knitting this fabric that to me is super exciting and super obvious, but isn't to, to most people. Yeah, I, it's funny because there's a, I don't know if you've heard of moreincommon.com, a really interesting qualitative study think tank. And one of the things that they published was an article about that difference of 
they call it foxes and hedgehogs, but it's when you have a wide ranging curiosity and the ways that you can bring different insights to different disciplines. Like once you're grounded in your discipline, because you need to kind of inform yourself and then you go out to this larger one, it allows you to have different perspectives and in terms of the work that you're doing and come up with creative ways of addressing typical problems. Yeah, exactly. That's the fun part. Right. I feel that. What, who do you typically work with or who thrives with your service? It really ranges. It's funny. You were talking about that curiosity. It, a specific type of client is somebody who is curious. I do tend to work. Majority of my clients are nonprofits. So very mission driven, but occasionally I will have a for-profit or government entity, but they have to have that mission, that mission really central because I want to work with the change makers and I want to work with the people who are not only curious, but they're committed to figuring out how to solve whatever the challenge is that they're focused on. And each of these challenges are going to connect with the next client and the next client. So for me, if I can help you in really, and you're open to change, then that next one's going to build off of what you just did. And so it's those, I want the folks that are really open and committed to doing things potentially differently. That makes sense. And in terms of just the number of things we're seeing that aren't working out as we would hope, what's a typical problem you find yourself solving if there is one? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if there's a, well, I guess there's a typical aspect to the problem, which is often I'll have organizations come to me who have tried the same type of program or the same type of intervention for years and years, and they suddenly are becoming more aware of we want to have greater impact. And so that's often the space that I'm sitting in is, all right, how do we make, how do we have greater impact or how do we have a greater difference or change this, whatever this nugget is that we're focused on, which could be how do we help older adults aging community in a healthier way? How do we, I do a lot of food insecurity work. So how do we address hunger, the root cause of hunger? And so my role is often that like, all right, let's ask the questions. Let's get curious and say, what have we been doing? How are, you know, if there's clients or there's humans that are involved on the receiving a program or service, let's talk to people. Let's talk to others in the community and just really get a better understanding of what's happening and what's working and what's not. The next big fun part is then going out and looking at other sectors, looking at the business world, looking at sometimes it is the public agency world and saying, what else is happening out there? Are there other approaches? Are there other partners we should be working with? And so I'm that person that gets brought in to kind of push a little bit to say, okay, here's where we are but here's where we could go. And then it's the question of how do we get there? And that's the other piece that I often do because I have a very deep knowledge of organizations and of communities and I understand how change happens and how we make this little shift today, tomorrow we make this next shift. And so I can often lead organizations through the change process as well. So we do the planning and then we actually do the implementation and that That's equally as fun as doing the planning, but that's really where you start to see the change and staff grow and relationships with community really deepen and have trust building. Makes sense. The trust building seems really important. It's huge. What's the 
best advice you've received or given or both? I would say it's around always being curious. So never assuming that you have all the answers. And that's one piece. I'm, I mentor a lot of people that are either in career transitions or are starting their careers. And that's, that's the one piece that I was given that I constantly give out is just stay curious. Always be open to talking to new people. Like I said, going to other sectors, looking what business is doing versus nonprofit. Like never, ever walk into that room th- saying, I know everything. I got it down. There's confidence. That's different. So you want to have the confidence that you know a lot and needs to ask, but you've got to always be open to learning more. Now, that is an important distinction that confidence is actually capable of uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, And that, in my my observation. (laughs) No, for sure. And and that's what your clients want to see, right? Like they, they don't want somebody coming in second guessing themselves. And for me, my sense of confidence is I know how to lead you through a process. And I also know how to stay really, really flexible and nimble and change that process on a moment's notice if we need to. But I'm not going to tell you that I know the answer to every single question walking in that door. Not yet. Ma'am, do you have an example of a time where that was successful? It makes me wonder, do people receive that really well, that curiosity or that willingness to look beyond the sector? Or is that maybe a sorting point if somebody really needs to be focused in sort of a smaller range, they're maybe not going to be a great fit for you. I know that's a three ranging question. So pick the one you like (laughs) or make one up. Just let me know what it is. (laughs) So I'll go somewhere in the middle. (laughs) So yeah, the reaction to that approach can really vary. I have found that some clients just really only want the expertise in one particular area. So for instance, I at one point in my career was working a lot in long-term care. So with nursing homes and assisted living and to walk into some of those places and say, let's be open, absolutely not received (laughs) because there's a lot of regulations and a lot of pressure to just do the one thing. But I have found for my approach is I don't walk in the door and say, okay, we're just going to throw it all up in the air. I walk in the door and say, get to know the client, get to know where they're thinking. And then we'll start to ease into the curiosity. I find that if you present the value of that, if people can see that this is going to add to what I do, it's not going to distract, it's not going to diminish, it's, I could have access to, could be greater funding, it could be a partner with a whole lot of expertise that I've never touched, then I find it's much easier for them to be open. Now, there's still going to be people in every single organization that have zero desire to do that. And the way that I, for me, the way that I approach it is just having that balanced communication. So I can recognize them very quickly and that's fine. If the entire organization is like that, I am less likely to take that client. But if it's one or two people, for me, it's an opportunity to help them grow. And oftentimes there is a little window or a light that goes on during the process and the time that I'm with them where I can see that person growing and opening. And That to me is one of those added bonuses where I've helped to expand this person, this organization, and sometimes it doesn't work at all. And that's just life. But most of my clients, there is that openness when you can talk about the value. And to build on what you said a little bit, that my experience, I worked in nonprofits for 13 years 
And I actually appreciated the, not the reflexive detractors who just always didn't like everything. The people that were willing to share a conflicting perspective or view and or even resist something because they had a thought that of concern or whatever, I felt like that was always a stronger way to engage in problem solving because then it forced people to okay. look at their blind spots or question their assumptions and mm-hmm. potentially get to a more effective and solid result. Yep. I just, yep. I am a little dismayed by the current national approach to to disagreement which is a weird sort of domination aspect instead of like more of a an actual exchange and recognizing that has value oh a hundred percent that honestly has been one of the most troubling things to observe over the last handful of years and that's i think that's the key to having good facilitation is being able to create that space and set some guidelines and then coach if you need to so that folks can feel it's based on like trust and comfort and knowing that the culture of your organization is going to be open to you having a different opinion or looking at something differently. And so some of that is navigating in the moment. Others is setting the tone and the space so that you can engage in that. I think there's also some natural resistance that has happened. Some of it's abated, but where we get a little nervous if we're talking from the nonprofit stance and we're trying to look to business or to the for-profit. I've seen definitely some good changes there where we're more open to what's happening in the for-profit world, but there's still there's just still some resistance to well, we're nonprofit, we can't be like a for-profit. And that that is something that I'm constantly addressing is that No, there's actually a lot of really amazing lessons that we can get from the for-profit world. And literally our difference is often our IRS status, not anything else. That is one piece I work on with every single nonprofit client. Like, don't bother saying the, the phrase of we can't make profits because it's what you do with the money that's the difference. It's not that you can't make money. But there's a lot of other lessons we can learn. And so some of that you just have to navigate and figure out what is the resistance that's coming up in that moment. Yeah. The phrase social impact came up when I was working and I like that as a focus because the nonprofit assumption is a sort of scarcity and poverty mentality. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that leads to a bunch of other problems. I've also Mm -hmm. been with the group called Post-Growth Entrepreneurship. And the woman who founded it, Dr. Melanie Ryback, (laughs) talks about the distinction between extractive profits, which are how we get billionaires, and non, and then the profit, which is the way that you run your business. And not non not for-profit businesses, I honestly think all businesses should not do the extractive piece, but that's a completely different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's a road I could go down. But the other profit is really essential. You have to have some money in the bank to guarantee payroll Mm -hmm. and to invest in infrastructure or in, and you have to have some room to fail. Mm -hmm. The cool thing about being a nonprofit or a social impact organization is that you can focus on your mission legally and you can also Mm -hmm. take risks that maybe a for-profit company would not be able to take due to regulations, which makes sense. There's also, what is it, those social entrepreneur, sort of the middle mm-hmm. ground for a corporation that has a social focus. Yep. Yep. 
And all of that feels it's important to, to me, it feels important because the poverty mentality, I do think grinds people up and it causes yep. us to lose some of those creative, committed problem solvers because they are worn out from not necessarily getting a fair treatment. <clears throat> oh yeah. You nailed that. <laughs> no question. I've seen so many people burn out from the nonprofit sector because of that. And I think that there's just such a benefit to being able to be nimble, which one could argue like a for-profit could be more nimble than a nonprofit, but I think they both have their special opportunities to try things. We've just created this mentality of you can't fail. Failure mm -hmm. is bad. And I completely disagree with that and, I, and encourage constantly, whether it's through Aging Dynamics or other projects, that we need to fail. We've got to try new things. We've got to not have them work out and learn from it and then try again. It's the only way that we're really going to change. And it, but it has to be supported, if we're talking from the nonprofit side, by the funding. And that I mean, itself is also another podcast. But <laughs> it's the systems that also have to be supportive of that different approach. And, and it takes time for people to get comfortable with the failure. Whereas we can look to the tech world and that's normal, right? You like, it's part of the design process actually is design sprints to like, try something, fail, try again, and you just keep going. And that's one of the pieces that I bring in actively to my clients is we're going to try this and we do it in a safe space. And then sometimes some will take it if we do a strategic plan and they'll keep going. Others, they're just not ready for it yet, but we practice. Yeah. I had my first mentor in the nonprofit world was an amazing grant writer still is she's around and one of the things that she told me was you never want 100 percent of your grants accepted because that means you're not trying new projects programs or new relationships she's anything higher than 85 is you're going for the easy win as opposed to actually really trying some new things and i i really kept that in my the back of my brain as i did things and i thought that was a really helpful perspective to apply across other aspects of the work, but it is scary. It's scary to take the trust of people and to say, all right, I think this has a good possibility and then find out, oh, well, I didn't get it. It is helpful to have a, a supportive board and community. And I think honestly, a consultant who can provide once again, those external eyes, because you, it's hard to see things right when you're right in the middle of it. What is the impact you seek to have doing this work, either for the specific folks that you work with or in a general sense or something else? Yeah, for me, it's, it's big picture. So what my hope is that whenever my professional journey wraps up, that is 30, 40 years from now, I would love to have thousands and thousands of organizations, endless number of, I want organizations that I've worked with to be stronger, to be able to fulfill their mission in a way that is efficient, that's effective, that's meaningful. I want them to be able to affect exponentially more change. And so everything that I do is about building up and strengthening organizations because we need all of us together in order to address these really big challenges that we have. Yeah. And so in addition to your aging dynamics, you founded a nonprofit to, to go along with this. Tell us more about that. 
I did. I'm also the executive director of Linkages Connects, which is a nonprofit that is addressing ageism and social isolation through creating opportunities for meaningful intergenerational connections. I, on a very personal level, believe that we're going to heal our world through intergenerational connections. And we need to do that in a very intentional way. And so what we do through Linkages is we help both organizations. So again, it's similar to aging dynamics in the sense of we're trying to increase the ability of more organizations to offer high quality intergenerational programming. And we know that there's four basic barriers to it. And so funding, program development, evaluation, and collaboration. And so through linkages, we're creating all kinds of resources and training and a collaborative network that helps organizations learn together and also learn how to create those high quality programs. And then we're also working so with the individuals. So we also offer programming through linkages as a way to not only demonstrate what a high quality program is, but also be able to offer it to like affordable housing providers and other organizations who don't have capacity or will to set up their own staff to do it. And so we're right now in this point where we're creating a whole online hub where all these resources are going to be living. There'll be a whole community space for people to do trainings and get together, whether you're organization staff or individuals. And we're also launching a nationwide or worldwide, if people want to come, network so that that'll launch on April 27th. And that'll be quarterly ways for folks to get together and engage. But it, it, very, it was very important to me from the aging dynamics perspective to be able to have a, a more direct focus on this area of social isolation and ageism. I can do it a little bit through my client projects, depending on which projects I get. But this was a really important area that I knew needed to be addressed. And the intergenerational piece has been proven many times, as you can look in the research, to have incredible benefits for both the youth and for older adults. Yeah, I had my own experience with the one of the nonprofits that I ran. We did an intergenerational project and the power of that and also the awkward resistances that we ran into was undeniable. And the end result was absolutely that the youth and the elders felt a sense of connection and rejuvenation and hope and de-isolation, which I know could sound like connection, but it was both pieces. Like they felt connected to these Mm -hmm. humans, but also the sense of being more apart. It was an LGBTQ community center. Mm -hmm. And especially for LGBT youth who come from often, not always, but often come Mm -hmm. from a family that is likely to be heterosexual, meeting an elder and having that sense of connection to their history creates a de-isolation factor within the world as well. So I can only imagine how powerful that would be in other programs and communities. I'm really glad that to hear that's being done. And I'll put that link also in the show notes so people can stay connected. For our listeners that are super on fire and they want to follow you or hire you or learn more, what's the best way for them to get connected? They can email me at Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, at aging-dynamics.com. Always happy to have a chat. And if somebody just has an idea or they're not sure if it's a go or not, I'm always happy to jump on a call and just talk about what they're thinking. Lovely. Do you have any other final thoughts before we wrap? Or I would say just stay curious. Always be, always question what the norm has been. And 
ask yourself, is there another way that we could be doing this? Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. All right.